Okay, good evening everybody and uh, welcome to our Horizons Public Lecture, which is part of uh, this year's Cambridge Science uh, Festival. Uh, today's talk is our sustainable food journey. So it's, we'll be talking to you about the steps that the university has taken towards kind of reducing its carbon footprint and making its kind of food across the university more sustainable. Um, so thank you very much for kind of braving the, the, the horrible weather and the coronavirus today to come here. So we really do appreciate it. Hopefully you'll find today's talk fascinating. Um, we're not expecting um, a fire drill, so if the fire alarm goes off, um, please do calmly make your way out at uh, fire, uh, fire exit signs. Uh, so we have uh, three speakers here uh, tonight. So we have uh, Emma Garnett from the Department of Zoology and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. Uh, we've got uh, Nick White, who is the head of the University Catering Service, and then uh, Amy munro Four from the Environment and Energy team. So they'll be talking to you uh, for a short while and then we'll have plenty of time for uh, questions uh, from the audience. Uh, so I'm gonna start by uh, handing over to Emma. And we're not gonna use microphones, but if you have trouble hearing at the back, uh, please do signal on every time using. Try and project, but maybe, yes, just like that. Uh, well, yes, good evening, everyone. And as Craig said, thank you for coming along to our talks on such a kind of wet and now quite dark night. So, I'll be providing a bit of some of the background um, to the university's food policy and some of the key environmental impacts of food and how it differs between species. So, sort of feeding everyone without crossing the earth. And so, this is a very short and a very incomplete journey through some of the ideas behind sustainable food. And firstly, I wanted to sort of begin with that food is great, food is wonderful, food is something to celebrate and to enjoy. And I think it can be very easy when we're thinking about some healthy diets or sustainable diets, it can feel quite boring and appetizing and a bit of a, a drudge. But saying that food that is good for us and for the planet, it can be very varied and delicious and interesting and, and exciting. So something to sort of bear in mind as I um, lead into this discussion. So the university sustainable food policy, there were four key um, tenets uh, to it that I'll go through one by one. So one was sort of promoting vegetarian and vegan food. The second was reducing meat options, and particularly pretty much removing beef and lamb from the menu. And by the way, this should not be taken as uh, a red that was saying that no one should ever eat beef or lamb ever, but this was a decision the University Catering Service, um, in conjunction with academics, made to remove it from meat outlets. And third, providing sustainably sourced fish, and fourth, reducing food waste, which is fairly uncontroversial. So why more vegan and vegetarian food? So, so this graphic um, from a very, very, very good paper is showing the greenhouse gas emissions for 100 grams of protein. And you can see that kind of from the top, so some of the worst things for the climate, cows, sheep, and farm shrimp, and then moving further down, sort of pigs, poultry, um, and fish. And then finally at the bottom, uh, sort of tofu, and nuts. So there's quite a clear trend going, moving from the top right-hand side of the graph down to the bottom left. But what's also really important to note is that there is a huge variation um, within these different food groups. There is no one climate footprint for all species. That is not how this works. There is a lot of variation in each of those groups. And that is really key to emphasize. However, what we is also quite important to notice is we're looking at some of the um, smallest carbon footprints of cheese, beef, and pygmy, these are still producing um, more greenhouse gas emissions 
is the hand at some of the worst sort of token nuts down at some of the policies. So yes, there's a lot of variation within these groups, but there is also kind of a clear trend. So this is why having a more plant-based diet is quite good news for climate change. And so what, what would a global sustainable diet look like? And there was a fantastic report that came out last year um, from the Eat Lancet Commission that was called a planetary health diet. And they said, right, if we're going to feed 10 billion people and still keep our climate within safe-ish warming limits, what could everyone eat and be healthy? And their recommendation, and so obviously there can be degrees of flexibility in this across the globe, of course, but they're recommending about um, 500 grams of beans and legumes a week, that's dry, about 350 grams of nuts, uh, in terms of red meat, so that's beef and lamb and also um, pork as well, that's about one and a half sausages worth per week. Two small portions of chicken, about 200 grams, uh, two small portions of fish, and seven glasses of milk. And so that's roughly about 16 kilos of meat per person per year, and about 20 kilos to account for food waste. So thinking about kind of meat supply. Anyone want to have a guess of how much the average person in the UK eats? That includes food waste. Shout some numbers at me. 480 kilos. Whoa, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> any other numbers? That was, that was quite a high number. 70. 70. So we've got 180, 70. Any other guesses? Uh, this is over a year, so it's scaled up now to a year. 95. Ah, interesting. Okay. 40. Well, uh, so now I can't remember what all of those numbers were, but people who said 170, I think you're the winner. So it's about 80 kilos in the UK, uh, which is about four times a recommended sort of planetary health diet. And you can see these trends over time. So in first place of these countries, or last place, depending on how you want to look at it, is the USA with 115 kilos meat supplied per person per year. Brazil and China have completely shot up over the last sort of four or five decades. And that's basically, that's the Amazon disappearing. The UK, we historically and currently still have very high meat consumption. Brazil's only overtaken us quite recently, whereas Nigeria and India are doing much better for the planet well below 20 kilos of meat per person, according to official figures at least. So globally, from 1961 to 2013, meat per person has almost doubled from 23 to 43 kilos. And the population has more than doubled from 3 billion to 7 billion. So over that time period, meat production has quadrupled. That is a huge change in our farming systems. And it's pretty hard to sustain, and so the stakes are pretty high. So secondly, kind of removing beef and lamb, and so diving into kind of the cattle numbers a little bit. Uh, so some people crunch some numbers. So if cattle were a country, they would rank third in greenhouse gas emissions behind China and the US, and almost double that over India. And although, hopefully you can see some of these labels, that in Europe, although our cattle numbers have sort of gone down uh, since about 1990, uh, sort of globally, uh, any kind of one time, any one time point, there's about one and a half billion cows in the world, which is a lot of cows. Thirdly, I'm sort of endangered fish and having, having more sustainable fish on the menu. So Atlantic cod, sort of an absolute staple of fish and chips. Um, the IUCN red list, which uh, estimates how endangered different species are, has this as vulnerable. This is a species at a mild risk of extinction. And that is in fact the same rating as the African elephant, which might surprise you. And then another endangered fish, the European eel. This is critically endangered. Its population has absolutely plummeted. 
and it still gets eaten in this country. Ely are having an eel festival at some point um, quite soon, and you can eat them, even though the European eel is has the same rating, critically endangered, as the black rhino, which certainly surprised me when I heard about that. So the oceans are known for fishing, fish stocks, we overfished about a third of them, and the rest are sort of fully fished, and only 7% are underfished. So avoiding these overfished fish stocks is of a really key part of any sustainable food policy. So keeping an eye out for things like uh, the Marine Stewardship Council, this white tick icon, and also there's advice from the Marine Conservation Society. And fourth, the final thing. So um, I was pleased to find out that food loss and waste is also, if it were a country, the third largest greenhouse gas emitter. So there's a parallel with cows I wasn't expecting when I put this uh, presentation together. So about a third of food that we produce worldwide um, is lost or sort of wasted, and that's 1.3 gigatons of edible food. Now, we can't re reduce all of this. There will be kind of inherent losses within the system. We can't um, correct for all of that. But reducing food waste across the supply chain is really, really key because household food waste is quite a small part of that whole system. And I'm going to stop there more or less, so there's plenty of time for discussion. But I do have some slides later on that I won't go through now. So if you wanted to ask about well, what about grass-fed beef and lamb and shouldn't we be producing food from all the land we can? Or what about food miles and eating locally, organic food, farm fish? livestock, antibiotic use and disease. Uh, those are some suggestions for discussion if you're interested. And then some kind of final food for thought and some quotes from two people I find very in, uh, inspiring. Uh, one from Greta Thunberg, who uh, has been in the news a lot in the recent years, and saying that sort of, yes, I know we need system change rather than individual change, but you cannot have one without the other, which I think sums up my internal conflict about trying to get myself and sort of individuals to change whilst being aware that there's sort of larger systems at play. And finally, um, from Mary Anise Hegler, who writes on sort of climate and climate justice. I've never seen a perfect world. I never will. But I know that a world warmed by two degrees Celsius is far preferable to one warmed by three degrees or six. And that I'm willing to fight for it with everything I have because it is everything I have. This planet is our only home. There's no place like it. And home is always, always worth it. Thank you very much. And I'll pass it to you. Uh, my name is Nick White, as Craig said, and I'm the head of the university's catering service. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, the university catering service is the University of Cambridge's in-house catering operation. Uh, we currently manage 14 catering facilities throughout the university estate, in addition to providing hospitality for over 1,500 events a year to almost every department in this university. Over the past five years, I've been working closely with academics and colleagues in the energy environment section, in particular Amy, uh, on how to make the university catering service more sustainable. Over the next few minutes, uh, I'd like to explain what we did. Uh, our current journey started towards the end of 2015, by which time the university catering service already had a long-standing commitment to good sustainability practices. These included becoming a fair trade university, the rollout of vegware compostable packaging and disposables, the introduction of keep cup reusable mugs and the recycling of cooking oil. While these initiatives had a significant positive impact, the University Catering Service recognised that much more could be done. However, with sustainable food relating to a huge range of often competing issues, standards and initiative, it was a real challenge to determine what approach would have the biggest impact. 
During discussions with Energy Environment colleagues, it was suggested that I meet Andrew Barnford, the university's professor of conservation. This was to understand the single most impactful approach the university catering service could adapt, which would be the big, have the biggest sustainability benefits locally and globally. Professor Barnford was willing, willing, very willing to help us. He showed me the latest research around food sustainability, which focused on addressing four key issues that would have the greatest sustainable benefits. These were reducing ruminant meat, which includes beef and lamb, improving, increasing and actively promoting plant-based options and meals, removing unsustainable fish from the menu and reducing food waste. I now had a clear direction set out. I took this advice on board and set to work creating the sustainable food policy to formally commit the university to meet these aims. Next, we need to set out an action plan to tackle these changes. One key issue was that the university catering service received no subsidy from the university and is therefore required to recover all of its costs from sales. However, despite the financial risk, I was keen to press ahead with the project. Working with our catering manager, we agreed our plan of action. We would gradually remove ruminant meat from our menus. We would provide a greater selection of vegetarian and vegan options. We would cease selling fish from unsustainable food stocks and we'd investigate ways to reduce food waste. We knew before we started that the impact of anything we did would need to be proven scientifically. So after further discussions with energy environment colleagues, we supported an internship to research the impact of our <coughs> initiative to offer more sustainable food choices. While this all sounded great in theory, clearly the biggest challenge was actually implementing it. At the catering service, we believe in supporting our team and ensuring everyone feels they're part of it. We knew implementing these initiatives would involve a lot of changes. So the key thing would be how we would encourage our team to engage with the process. We started by presenting the four main changes to our managers and chefs and outlining the benefits of providing sustainable food choices to our customers as well as for the environment. Together we agreed our strategy of how we can make sustainable healthy food choices easy for customers. The key elements of this strategy included redesigning our menus, introducing choice architecture, and most importantly, producing great taste in plant-based dishes. Next, we engaged with our food service team who were at the front line and hence needed to understand the benefits of the changes, not only to explain to customers the reason behind the changes, but to understand themselves why these changes were being made. All food service team members were briefed on the environmental benefits of the sustainable food policy so they would have a full understanding of the need for the changes. We found that once we had engaged with our staff and spent time together exploring the reasons behind the changes, they were not only supportive, but they were positively excited that they could make a real difference. Next, we started the programme of developing our chefs. I knew that the removal of ruminant meat and promoting plant-based options over meat ones was going to be a major challenge. This is because meat cookery is a core part of every chef's training and day-to-day -day work. Working with colleagues in the University of Cambridge Colleges, Vegan cookery classes were set up so that chefs became more familiar and comfortable creating dishes that were plant-based. We also organised study trips to creative places like Borough Market and other venues that were doing exciting plant-based dishes. To build their confidence in creating plant-based menus, chefs were encouraged to research dishes and through the process of cook tests, refine and personalise them. Final dishes were tasted by the team and dishes that proved popular were included in our menus. Receiving praise from colleagues and seeing a dish on the menus encouraged the chefs to be more enthusiastic about this change. We also trained our cafe managers new merchandising techniques, which we had modified to promote sustainability rather than profit. So why did it work? 
Well, firstly, collaborating with the academics and energy environment team meant that the most impactful approach could be identified, delivered, and the research results researched and communicated widely. It's a model of how academics and university staff can work together to deliver a solution to a difficult problem. By engaging with our team, we got them on board, and this was critical to the success of the changes we wanted to make. Customer perspective was also key to the success. Climate change is very much in the media. There's awareness of the link between food and the environment, and many people in the university wanted to see change. This meant we had little customer resistance to the changes we ultimately made. From the customer perspective, there was a new range of exciting contemporary foods to try, which were also more sustainable than the previous ones. We knew from customer feedback that changes had been well received by our students and staff, but we were unsure how it would impact on sales and profits. However, finally, despite our concern, we made financial gain, which meant that we could carry on with our changes, while some of the initiatives carried out had incurred costs, for instance, running additional training and per unit cost of composable, compostable disposables, others have a, a net financial benefit. Ruminant meat is a relatively high cost item and cutting this out of the menus has helped control food cost purchases. As time went by, the accounts demonstrated that not only have we maintained our market share, but sales had actually year on year increased. In addition, as the margin on plant-based foods is greater than that of meat, gross margin was significantly better. Finally, implementing the sustainable food policy required a significant commitment from our team at all levels. While there were challenges to change operations and behaviour, we were determined to make it a success because we knew we were doing the right thing. And in the end, it was proved the results were well worth the effort. Our sustainable food journey proves that customers can be encouraged to choose the right option of food when they are presented with tasty, good quality plant-based meals. We've also shown that large catering operations can be sustainable without losing business. Thank you for listening. Okay, thank you very much, Nick. And uh, lastly, um, hand over to Amy. Hello, so I'm here this evening to tell you a little bit about the impact of this work in all of their various flavours. Um, so, I work for the Environment and Energy section, um, and this project was one that I came into probably about halfway through, and was a uniquely exciting proposition for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we got to work with a range of academics. We've already mentioned uh, Andrew and the impact that, and the input that he's had into this process. Um, I'm going to shout out a little bit more about Emma's work, um, but also Therese Marteau and Chris um, and some others at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership also helped us in this process of shaping the sustainable food policy and taking what is a fiercely complex set of issues and distilling it into something that was easy to communicate and understand for both our staff and our customer base. So that was one reason why. Um, the next piece, and this is something that Emma's already alluded to, and her infographic is far nicer than mine, mine was just pulled from the paper, is that there are real differences in the impact that food makes. And yes, there is huge variation between the best beef and the worst beef, and actually the best grain and the worst grain, but the, the fact, as Emma very clearly pointed out, is that the best grains are still a lot better for the environment than the vast majority of all beef. And this is a little bit about why that is, and essentially this fleshes out, this is an infographic that comes from the Sustainable Food Journey document that we pulled together to put out about this. The reason why that is, is that sheep and cows essentially are much less efficient at putting on protein than chickens or plants are. They have inefficient stomachs, they have to digest grass, which is difficult to digest because of its chemical structure and chemical makeup. 
So that means that it is more difficult then to put on proteins that we can then eat. So how do we do it? These guys have already talked a little bit about how we do it, but I wanted to basically shout out to Emma and some of her amazing research that has driven this, which is we used an approach that also spoke to how customers interact with their food options. So Emma's been doing some amazing research within Cambridge colleges, essentially looking at the impact that the options that you have in front of you have on what choice you might be likely to make when you go on to select the, the food that you're going to um, eat. It's not about reducing choice, it's about changing the choice that you have in front of you. So what she found through her research, I think she had over 100,000 observations, um, was that when you had more vegetarian options available, perhaps unsurprisingly, you saw more people picking a vegetarian option. And this was a key component of how Nick and his staff went on to roll that out within the cafes. So if you have more vegetarian options available and tastier vegetarian options available, then people are more likely to pick them, basically. So we talked a lot about why we did this and how we did this. Um, so this policy that Nick mentioned was first introduced in October 2016. In October 2018, we were scheduled to do a review of that policy. So at that time, myself and a couple of others went around to all of the academics who'd originally input into the design of that policy, those four key points that Emma made, and said, is this still working? Is this the best way forwards? What's the next thing to do, basically? And they all came back and said, well, that's great. It's amazing what you've done in the meantime, but how can you actually measure the impact that those changes have had? So that was a bit of a conundrum. Um, so we were very, very lucky. And at the time, Nick allowed us to take on two very brilliant graduate students. They both recently just graduated who came and worked with us to try and help us work out how to measure the impact that we'd had. Um, and what we decided to do was to take the principal aim, which was, was to look at the effect that changing what we were selling had on greenhouse gas emissions and see how that adjusted, had adjusted between the period before the policy and after the policy using the best available evidence that we could find. So what we did is we looked at carbon dioxide equivalent emissions from March to May 2015, before the policy was introduced, and then looked at the same between March to May 2018 after the policy was introduced. This was a vast amount of work. These two basically went through thousands of invoices, putting together the mass of all the different food types that the university had procured during those two periods. It was an absolutely vast enterprise. Um, and then what did they do? So they went back and they used this paper. So this paper, which is the one that Emma and I have both referred to, is what we call a meta-analysis. So what that means, it's not just one study that they've done, they've gone out and collected all the studies they can find about the greenhouse gas emissions of food and put it all together into one paper and then produce the results of that. So we think this is probably the most reliable paper that you can find at the moment on estimates of greenhouse gas emissions of food. And yes, there are some assumptions in there, and Emma will be able to speak to those probably better than I can, <laughs> she looks nervous, but, um, but essentially it's the best piece of evidence we think there is available to try and work out what the greenhouse gas emissions from food look like. So we didn't reflect the range in the calculations we did because we already had this vast database of food types. So we took an average value for each one of these and we looked at, looked at it as if, as if we were sourcing our food from either the UK or Europe, depending on what food type it was. And what we found was that we'd seen quite a dramatic reduction in our carbon footprint based on this paper. So what we saw, this first line, 
is that our overall carbon footprint had gone down 10.5% between 2015 and 2018. Now, I remember that Nick mentioned that the business had actually grown during that period as well. So that's a very impressive figure. Okay. In terms of the relative change, so if you think about how much carbon emissions there were per kilo of food that we purchased, that change was more dramatic. And we saw a 33% reduction in carbon emissions. That's the third line in there. There's another set of numbers in here as well, which I'm going to touch on less, but are also interesting, which is that paper also, that meta-analysis paper I mentioned, also talked about land use. Now that made a few more assumptions, but we also saw that this policy had had a reduction in terms of land use as well, which was really exciting to see. Um, so having done that piece of work, this very brilliant graduate, Anya, then went on and did another piece of work, which essentially made some um, estimates about what our emissions would have looked like if we hadn't introduced that policy, which is what we see on the left-hand side, which allowed us to suggest that we probably had reduced our carbon emissions by about 500 tonnes a year annually, which is substantial and exciting. So that's one type of impact. We then have another type of impact, which is that by working with Craig in the communications office, when we found out these facts and developed the Sustainable Food Journey Report, which is freely available on the university's website, um, they wrote a press release about it and put it out into the public realm, which was really, really exciting, but also caused a certain amount of controversy, which, to be fair, we were expecting, and there are certainly assumptions in there which we're more than happy to discuss. Um, but that's another type of impact, the fact that it got out there and it influenced people, which is really interesting. And dealing with the ramifications of that has been a fascinating process. Further type of impact, apologies, I ran out of pretty pictures at this juncture. Um, but we've also done some more work within the university. So this policy was just for university, university catering service cafes, which there are 14 now, is that right? Um, but all the colleges are still pretty much continuing, <coughs> not quite business as normal. Uh, lots of their students are lobbying them quite heavily to try and change things, I think. But, but to a degree, business is normal. So we did a couple of other things. We had a really, really exciting dinner where we got college fellows together and got a fantastic vegan chef to come in, Michelin-style vegan chef to come in and cook them vegan food to show them how fantastic it could be. That was a really exciting event. And in parallel with that, we've also seen through the Catering Managers Committee, which is a conglomerate of all the different colleges to get together basically <coughs> for food purchasing, they've actually introduced their own version of sustainable food policy now, which whilst it's less rigorous, less um, definite than our sustainable food policy is there and commits them to trying to reduce their environmental impacts in a way that they didn't before. There's also been work done with other university suppliers, for example the food park at Eddington in West Cambridge, working with the suppliers there, so where they've got beef and lamb in their food offering, to trying to work with them to develop new recipes, come up with exciting things that means they can still run their business in a profitable way that's good for the local economy and supports the local economy whilst reducing their environmental impact. And further afield, there's been lots more work that's gone on. Um, so we've been invited to various different conferences to talk about this to other universities, about how we did it, how they could potentially do it. Uh, there was a campaign called the No Beef Campaign, which used us as a case study. Uh, the Committee on Climate Change has got in touch with us asking about how we did it. The Government Office in Science got in touch with us to ask about how we did it. Other universities have got in touch with us individually and said, how did you do this? Um, and what was the impact that it had, and what did your students think about it? Um, we're also collaborating with the World Resources Institute on their new Cool Food Pledge, which is also an exciting new initiative. 
And finally, there's a few top tips about doing this, which are essentially just to do it. Um, and if it turns out that you've done it in a wrong way, you can readjust. But in order to make difference and make a difference in the climate <sighs> challenge that we are facing, you need to take action. And if it turns out that actually you could have done it slightly better, then you can adjust your course when you get to that stage. Gaining academic input, having an evidence base for us as a research university, I think was one of the most important parts about this. The fact that we went and talked to lots of different people, got lots of different perspectives before we went ahead and did it. Um, focus on the most impactful actions. I think what Nick said at the beginning was really important, that it's a hugely complex environment. But to make a difference, you can't tell everyone it's really complex. Complexity is really scary and difficult to deal with. So if you simplify it, even if it's not perfect, then you can make more of a difference and go faster than if you retain that complexity the entire time. Um, finally, I'm going to skip the secured buy-in endorsement from committee, but that was essential in making it happen. That was within internals within the university. Um, but monitoring and reporting was really valuable for us. So telling people about what we'd done, trying to be as transparent as possible about what we had done. Um, and also, little bits about riding the wave of hot topics, so things about cut phrase plastics. We haven't really touched on it, but, it, but the university catering services also completely stopped selling plastic water bottles just casually on the side of this whole project, which I think is fantastic. Um, and also, enter awards. We've had remarkable success in entering a number of awards. So these two were the Environmental Association of Universities and Colleges and the Chuka Awards, so Chuka are a catering consortium. More importantly, there was another one, which was called the Solution Search Award, which I might let Emma tell you about in questions because she did most of the work on it. Um, and thank you for listening. I've got a list here um, of as many of people that I could remember who have been involved in this project throughout its genesis. And I, the final point that I want to make is this has been a wonderful project to be involved with, but it's worked because of all the different people. We've had academic <coughs> impact, we've had student input, we've had operational staff inputting into it, we've had people from outside, we've had NGOs input into this, and that's what has made this project a really interesting and I think successful place to be. So thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much Amy. On your way out, um, if you want uh, to pick up a copy of Horizons magazine, uh, this has some more information about the sustainable food policy uh, and how it fits into the kind of the, the wider work at the university to try and remove, uh, to reduce its, its carbon footprint. Um, so um, hopefully that's given you some, uh, some food for thought, um, no pun intended. Um, but there's plenty of time for questions. But before we do, I can I can completely endorse the the vegan food that they're serving. So I had the the moving mountains burger for lunch today, and it was actually really nice. Kind of, if if nobody has told me, I wouldn't have realised it wasn't even meat. It was kind of so delicious. Um, anyway, over to you for for questions. Uh, yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> Tell me to shut up. I'm sorry for hogging the stage, but I'm really interested in the importance of cost. Um, I'm here as a person, but that's really, really interested in tackling that climate change. And for reference, I think pretty obviously the impacts are on climate change for farmers, but we've got farmers that we look after who've got, well, not farmed any crops at all so far as we're concerned. Mm -hmm. They're getting terribly run drought, as Mr. Adam just heard. So they're facing it.
going to harness some of the demand for them. And so providing that means and then they offer that to you. So the first point is lastly about that event. But the whole day talks about getting livestock onto your crop farm and how you harness it. Okay, so I guess what's what I got out of that is and, and the piece of this as well is is actually fundamentally how to use livestock. Okay, so it's very cost effective. So we don't have to use chemical fertilizer. Thank you for everything you said and glad to have this sort of chance to have a discussion. And as you said, sort of farmers are really on the front line of dealing with the effects of, of climate change and sort of, as you say, all the droughts and the flooding. And is this yeah. Oh, sweet. <laughs> um, so first thing to say about livestock onto crop farms and sort of having livestock as part of a mixed farm rotation. And I think essentially, for me, practically all the points you've made are very valid and important, and those do not conflict with a lower meat diet. They sort of go together with that an important component. So, and as a, as a company that grows so it pulses for people to sort of eat directly, hunting dogs, 
and anthems of the Nimadu. They were talking about the importance of, for some of their farmers, having livestock on for the rotation. And they say on most farms, the sort of the amount of weight coming off is about 99% bean and about 1% meat. Um, so I don't know that from paper, but that, that's a ratio I can get behind. Like fantastic, like mostly bean, some some meat. Um, I think that is compatible with the planetary health diet that was sort of being mentioned. And you also uh, come across this a, a, a lot in the kind of discourse as an assumption that when we talk about plant-based diets, it means you're sort of anti-farming, which is not the case. The, the plants that we'll be eating will be coming from farms as well. And that uh, there's lots of, sort of opportunities for farmers in this as well. So oatly, plant-based, oat drink, cooking, helping farmers who are interested in doing so, in shifting production from predominantly dairy to kind of more oats, which you can grow in lots of places. So there are lots of opportunities for farmers in this as well, and particularly those growing um, beans. So currently we grow beans in this country and we feed them to livestock. We also tend to export them to Egypt and other places and then re-import them as falafel. Um, which doesn't make much sense. So companies, and I'm not paid by them, I swear, I just think they're amazing, but Holman Dunn's sort of working with farmers, getting a better price for their beans, for us to eat directly, I think is fantastic. So there are those opportunities there. And the sustainable food policy, the estimates they are using in those calculations, those are from Northwestern Europe. So that isn't sort of Brazilian beef feeding into that average. So that is sort of the specific um, emissions. Uh, in terms of sort of self-sustaining sort of within the UK, um, so we don't eat very much lamb. It's about it's quite a small part of the average British diet, and we are about self-sufficient in that we eat as much as we produce. Chicken and beef, we're only about seventy-five percent self-sufficient. We're eating more than we're producing, and the cakes, pork, which we eat a huge amount of, sort of similar amount to poultry, big part of the amount of meat we eat. We're only fifty-five percent self-sufficient. We import a lot from Denmark. And some one report estimated that 55% of UK crops, I think cereal crops, are fed to livestock. So I think there are definite wins for sort of food security in the UK moving to a more plant-based diet. And please, I've heard people discussing before we started sort of the cows on Cambridge Common. I think they're great, they're lovely. You know, I don't want them to go, but that produces so little meat per person, that kind of system, that sort of expensive grazing. So I think, um, yes, I think practically, I agree with a lot of what you said, uh, and, but I think all the points do go hand in hand with a lower meat diet on average. And there, is, there are so many women's here, but I think we just can't get around the fact meat takes up more carbon emissions sort of across the board, more land, and that is a very fixed amount. We need to be using this, those biofuels, like this miscanthus is a type of biofuel, which is a grass that should be growing that. So I think, yeah. We should talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to add to that. I would echo what Ethan has said, and I also really value your contribution. It's been you raised a lot of really good points there, and Dad for coming up. Um, I also make a point about the university's own farm, if that's okay, which is that we're currently in very early stage in trying to go through a similar process to the university's farm. Um, and essentially what we're trying to do is to go in, as we want to find the best evidence that we could go to try and get, try to engage with the sustainable food policy to do the same thing with our farm. And I'd very much welcome to have a conversation with you at the end about that if you would like. That would be really helpful.